Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for um, just the way that you use it to speak to our lives in the most amazing and practical ways. And Lord, I pray tonight that you would encourage us this evening as we look at your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we noted how the Bible is practical. That it deals with the present day realities that we find ourselves in. We talked about how in chapter 3, Paul began in the heavenlies, talking about heaven, but he ended on earth and talking about how the gospel and how the word of God was designed to direct the most important relationships in our lives. The relationship between the husband and wife, the relationship between parents and children, But then it also speaks into the everyday aspects of our lives in the sense that it goes to work with us and it really shows us what the relationship is supposed to look like between employer and employees, those who are following Christ. Well, Paul wraps up this section on Christian living that he began in chapter 3 by talking about the believer's walk, the believer's talk, and the believer's prayer life. And then he spends the last part of chapter 4 mentioning the names of some people who were people that, that served behind the scenes. You know, in the church world, so often the ones who get the most attention are the ones who are on the platform. The ones who are out in front. Those are the ones who get the most attention. But any church leader will tell you that the heartbeat of any church is those who are serving behind the scenes. It's the kind of people that no one knows. They don't see very often. Steve, he's one of those guys that does so much here behind the scenes that no one ever sees, but that is essential and so vital. And if you've ever felt like one of those behind-the-scenes people, I think you're going to love this chapter. Because, you see, God purposes in his inspired word to write the names of nine different people who served, in essence, behind the scenes with the Apostle Paul. And I find this to be so incredibly fascinating that that God takes the time to mention them, and there's a lot we can learn from their lives and their stories. And so we're going to talk about that tonight as well. But let's begin in verse 2. We left off in verse 1 last week. Verse 1 really connects uh, to chapter 3. So he says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be with grace season with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Pause there and give me your attention. Paul begins here as he's wrapping up this letter in talking about prayer. And prayer and worship, I think, are the highest form or the highest uses of the gift of speech. That the greatest thing that we can do with this gift of being able to talk is to talk to God. And to worship God, because we were made to live in relationship with him. That's the greatest thing that we can do. It was Warren Wiersbe who said, prayer is like air for the soul. I love that. You see, in the natural world, there are four things that we need to survive. We need food, we need water, we need light, and we need air. You take away any one of those things in our world, our natural world, it falls apart. But in the spiritual realm, the same thing is true. We need food and water and light and air. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, the light of the Christian life is Jesus himself, the light of the world. 
and our connection to him and him shining his light in us and through us. Our water is the living water that comes from the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. Our food is the word of God, the bread of life that we are are partaking of. And prayer is like air for the soul. It's like breathing. And here in verse 2, Paul gives us four insights into what makes for a powerful prayer life. If you're taking notes, he says there in verse 2, continuing earnestly in prayer. The word earnestly means steadfast, consistent, and devoted. And this tells us that there are two things that are going to make for a strong prayer life, and that's discipline and consistency. Prayer cannot be something that we just do occasionally. It needs to be constant. And so we need to find ways in our lives to be constant in our prayer life, in our talking with the Lord. And I found in my life that that things that involve discipline, and prayer is a discipline, things that involve discipline need a plan. You know, I I go to the gym a couple times a week and I work out. And I meet with a, a guy there that, that I work out with and, and there, I come, there's a plan. I don't, it's not random. It's like, okay, what are we doing today? We're doing upper body today. What are we doing, you know, tomorrow? We're doing lower body. And there's a, a plan as it relates to, you know, how we are, are working out. There's a plan. And, and in my study, of God's word and, and being, you know, one who is the primary teacher here at the church. There, there's a plan in that every Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday morning I'm given to studying of God's word. There's a plan. Anything in our life that, that we're going to be consistent in, there needs to be a plan. And I think the same thing is true about prayer. We need to have set times that we are given to prayer. For me, it's in the morning, a set time. I also find that having a prayer list, certain things and people each week and certain days that I'm praying for and certain days I'm praying for, you know, our ministry team here and certain days I'm praying for, you know, our home group leaders and certain days I'm praying for our missionaries and, and, and just having that, that kind of discipline and consistency is very, very important. But you know, I found the biggest thing for me, though, in having a healthy prayer life is praying in the moment. And what I mean by that is whenever a situation comes up, whenever a person comes to my mind, whenever I'm, you know, driving by, you know, something that reminds me of something or someone, I take that time to pray because prayer is really like breathing. It's in and out. It's, it's that constant kind of flow. And, and think of it in this way. Our relationship with Jesus, and, and I do think you know, discipline and prayer times and prayer lists and all of that is very, very good and very, very important. And that's one aspect of prayer life. But in reality, prayer needs to be just like I'm going through my day with Jesus and I'm talking to him. And I'm listening for him. You know, when, when I, in my relationship with my wife, Denise, we, I, I would say we have pretty good communication in our relationship. But, but our communication, it doesn't look like this. It's not like, okay, I'm going to talk, 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 talk. And then I stop and go, okay, now it's your turn. And then she talks, 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 and I go, okay, now it's my turn. No, it's a back and forth. We're talking and we're sharing. And, and so the Bible tells us that we're to be meditating upon the word of God. And, and so it's throughout the day as we're meditating upon the word of God and something that maybe we read in the morning that we're talking to the Lord about it and we're, we're expressing our heart and something that we're burdened about. Instead of just worrying about it, instead of just fretting, instead of you know, spending so much brain power in trying to figure out how we're going to fix this or that, that we give it to the Lord. We're talking to him. That's the idea. Being constant in prayer, being earnest, continuing earnestly, he says, in prayer. The second thing Paul tells us, though, about our prayer life is it needs to be vigilant. He mentions that word also there in verse 2. And vigilant is translated watchful and alert. In fact, it's interesting. We get our word vigilante from this word. And vigilant is a word that is connected to battle. 
It speaks of a soldier or a watchman who is being on guard. And it's interesting, that word, that phrase, watch and pray, is often used together in the Bible. In fact, you recall when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it was a very pressing time for him. As he's praying there, before he's going to go to the cross, and he's sweating, and he's having just this very intense time in, in, of prayer and talking to you know, his heavenly Father and asking him, if there's any other way, let this cup you know, be, be removed from me, but not my will, but your will be done. And he's just pressing in and having this time. Well, he asked his disciples, Peter, James, and John, three times, watch with me and pray. Hey, I'm going to go over here and pray, but I want you guys over here to watch and pray. And every single time he'd come back from this intense time of just battling, being vigilant in prayer, and he'd come back and he'd find these guys asleep. And he'd wake them up and go, guys, watch and pray with me. And then he'd go over and pray again, and he'd come back and they'd be sleeping again. And after the third time, Jesus said this in Matthew 26. He says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, why don't you you catch something here? When he said that, it wasn't an indictment against them. He wasn't saying, man, you lousy, weak dudes. No, he was making a factual statement. Guys, you need to be watching and praying because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's one of the reasons why I very seldom pray laying down. I've tried that before. And I wake up the next morning and I can't even remember what I was praying about, you know. The spirit is willing, flesh, oh man, it, it is weak. And Jesus knows that about each of us. He knows that our flesh is weak, and so he wants us to be combating that. And because we're in a spiritual battle, we need to stay alert at all times. So we need to be vigilant to watch and pray. And then the third thing he tells us about prayer is that it should be thankful. He says being vigilant or watchful in it, but then he says, but with thanksgiving. That's kind of an interesting contrast between those two ideas of, you know, vigilant, but man, I'm happy about it. Why? Because I remember, it's like the song we, we sing so often is, I remember the battle, I'm in a battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. He's already been victorious. And I think gratitude is a stimulus to prayer. Gratitude is born out of a healthy walk with God and an appreciation of what God has done for you. You know, my kids, when they were younger, and even so, uh, even now that they're, they're adults, they, they have no problem, especially when they were younger, they had no problem ever asking me for anything. Why? Because they knew that I loved them. And when a believer really knows that God loves them, that God is for them, it's the same result. We're not afraid to approach him because we recognize this is daddy. This is the one who loves us. You know, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus was talking to his disciples about not worrying about their provision. And he used an analogy. And he says, you know, in the same way that God takes care of the birds, and the same way that your heavenly Father clothes the the flowers and the lilies of the field, don't you know he's going to take care of you? And then Jesus made this amazing statement in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, when he said this, don't you know it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? It's an amazing statement, guys. I remember the first time I ever read that verse, I about fell out of my chair. Because this is what he's saying. He's saying, your heavenly Father takes great pleasure in blessing you, in taking care of you, giving you the the, the kingdom, and giving you what you need. And In other words, he takes great pleasure in that. The reason why I fell out of my chair was because I thought I had to work so hard to earn God's blessing. And he was saying, no, no, no. God, he he just wants you to trust him because he takes great pleasure in blessing you. And, And I think we get this. You know, I think our Heavenly Father, He loves to just see the surprise look on our face when He does something for us. 
And we understand that. I mean, think about at Christmas time, you who are parents, what are you most interested in? Are you, are you most interested in your presence? Like, what am I getting? Or are you most interested in watching the look on, on the face of your kids or your grandkids as they're opening up what you got them and you see their faces just light up? And you're just like, and they're like, oh man, you know, Poppy, thank you. So you're just like, yes. <laughs> now, if you are most interested in your presence, you need to see, make an appointment to see Pastor Jesse next week, all right? <laughs> Get some counseling, okay? <laughs> but that's God's heart. He takes blessing in, in, in caring for us. So our prayer life is to be marked by thanksgiving, knowing our Father loves us and he's for us and he loves to bless us. And you know what? I just have to say is that personally, I don't think there's, there's anything more abhorrent than grumpy Christians. Some Christians, they're kind of like Eeyore. You know, Eeyore, how you doing? I'm doing okay, you know. It's going to rain today, you know. And I mean, they're, <laughs> that's, that's they're just like everything is always grumpy. Everything is always, always negative. And I think, I mean, grumpy, critical believers just drive me crazy. You know why? Because we have so much to be thankful for. And I want you to think about, what do you have to be thankful for? Go home tonight and make a list of what you have to be thankful for. And if you are drawing a, a blank right now, let, let me, I'll just give you your starting point. If you're a believer in Jesus here, this is your starting point. You're going to heaven, okay? And you were going to hell, all right? <laughs> you were damned and doomed and you aren't anymore. That's the starting point, all right? of what we can be thankful for. So, so a prayer life that is being, being earnest and vigilant and, and thankful, and finally, Paul mentions, and purposeful. And I think too often our, our prayers are vague in general. And I think one of the reasons for our vagueness is because we're ignorant of God's specific will, which is one of the reasons why I, I love to study the prayers of the Bible. The prayers of Jesus, John 17. The prayers of Paul. Because these are inspired prayers. So if you want to know what God's heart is for you in prayer, study, memorize the prayers in the Bible. They give you great insight on, on how to pray. You know, it was Richard Trent, the archbishop in Dublin, Ireland, who said this, the purpose of prayer is not to get man's will done in heaven, but to get, to get God's will done on earth. So often we think prayers about us moving the heart of God, but really prayers about us spending time with him so that our heart gets changed. Trent went on to say, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. I think some of the reasons, the, the, some of the, the reasons why God doesn't answer our prayers right away is because he just wants us to be with him, spend time with him. Come back, you know. It's kind of like, Rob, if I answered your prayer like every single time the first time, I'd never see you, you know. So, so there's times where it's like he's going to wait. Gotta come back day after day after day because he's like, you know, in this time of coming and meeting with me, I'm going to be doing something in your heart and your life. So prayer is marked by a purpose. And Paul had a specific purpose, a specific thing on his heart that he wanted prayer for. Look at verse uh, 3 and 4 again. He says, praying also for us, here's his purpose, that God would open to us a door for, for the, the word, that's the gospel, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. This tells us that the proclamation of the gospel is empowered by prayer. Somebody came to visit Charles Spurgeon's church. Big church, about 5,000 people gathering there in England. He wanted to know, man, what's the secret? Spurgeon says, follow me. I'll show you the secret to the power of what God's doing here at the Metropolitan Chapel there in London. 
And he took him down to the basement where there were 150 people praying for their city and for their church on a daily basis. 150 people coming and packed that. that it was a, a move and a work of prayer and that, that it was the prayer of the saints that was blessing the, 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 the word. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, well, at, at least I can pray for you, Pastor Rob. That's not the least that you can do. It's the most. It's the best. I pray that you would be praying for the word to go forth here. And I want you to notice what Paul's asking for. He, and, and, and remember, he's in prison. He's not saying, hey, pray that I get out of here. Nope. He says, pray for an open door. I can preach the gospel. And we know from the book of Philippians that God answered that prayer because he ended up being able to preach the gospel spread through a whole, the whole palace guard. All these, all these uh, soldiers that were uh, stated or, or, or assigned to guard Paul as he was there in prison, you know, it's like he's got a, a captive audience, literally. They, they had to stay there. So he just kept talking about Jesus. They kept getting saved. The gospel spread throughout the whole palace, palace guard. He says, pray for open doors, for the gospel to go forth. That's really why we exist. Now, as we move on here, I want you to notice, because of Paul's heart, he was so geared towards outreach, that he was always considering those outside the faith. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And here we see the focus is on our walk and our talk with unbelievers, those who are on the outside. He says, be wise. Walk in wisdom toward those who are on the outside. Be wise in how you conduct yourself. Be sober. Be wise. Don't be, if I can be so frank, don't be an idiot, you know? <laughs> be wise. Don't be goofy. You know, don't be frivolous. Don't just be somebody that just, you know, speaks without thinking or, or just, you know, like we talked about on Sunday, I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. You know? No, no, no. Be wise. Redeeming the time. The idea there is making the most of the opportunity. And I ask you this. What's your attitude with unbelievers? Is it disdain? Oh, man, I can't stand these people. I'm glad they're going to help. Man, I hope that's not your heart. Is it disdain or is it compassion? Do you see them as a bother or does your heart break? I think we need to pray often, God, give me a burden. Give us a burden for the people around us that don't know you. He says, walk in wisdom. You know, it's, it's cliche, but it's true. You know, it's been said, you might be the only Bible that somebody reads. Or put it this way, you might be the first Bible that somebody reads. As they see that in your life. But we also need to be wise in how we talk what our speech is like. So he says in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He says in our speech, we need to be gracious. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That's what God has given to us. So being gracious in our speech is talking to someone in a way that it shows kindness that they don't deserve. When our flesh wants to lash out and somebody's being a jerk, it's like we're going we're gonna to smother them. Like Joe's Chili's going to smother that hot dog next week. We're, <laughs> we're going to smother them with kindness. Okay? That hot dog isn't going to taste like a hot dog. It's going to taste like this amazing chili. Okay? That's what happens when we, we're smothering people with kindness, with grace, it has an effect on them. It rubs off on them. And he says seasoned with salt. And salt was used in Bible times to do several things. One was to enhance the flavor of food, like we, we use it today. So it's talking about a speech that enhances others, that builds them up instead of tearing them down. In Proverbs 10, verse 11, we're told, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. I love that verse. And when we listen to the words of someone who is wise, it's like taking a drink from a fresh spring on a hot summer day. It's a fountain of life. It's refreshing. 
Salt was also used, though, in that culture to heal wounds. They, they, they would put salt on, on a wound in order to keep it from you know, getting infected and, and, and in order to, to heal it. When I was playing baseball in, in high school and in college, you know, they played baseball and that, that if you've ever been to, you know, see the Padres play or somebody that, that red clay is really, really gritty. It's nasty. So a lot of times in sliding, I'd get, you know, just my legs scraped up or if I, you know, dove, you know, my arms um, scraped up and, and sometimes it would be just really, really bad. So you know what I'd do? I'd, I'd go to the beach the next day. I want to get in the salt water. Great, great, you know, excuse. And, Mom, I got to go to the beach, you know, to go heal my wounds. I'm going to go surfing today, you know, and, and, and just that, that's, they use salt in that way. It was used in a medicinal type of way. Well, in Proverbs 16, verse 24, it says, Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. And in that culture, honey was both a luxury and just like salt, it was medicine. This is what our speech is seasoned with salt. It can have a medicinal effect when we're talking in a way that is tender towards others, that, that our words can literally be used to heal broken hearts. Proverbs 12, 18 says, The words of the wise promote healing. It's a speech that brings healing into situations and conflicts. And remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what we're to be. Salt was also used as a preservative. So he's talking also about speech that preserves the truth, that preserves righteousness. So it's talking about that a place for standing up and speaking up for the right things. This is how we are to live our lives toward those who are on the outside. Redeeming the time. Now, as I said, as we wrap up this chapter tonight, Paul is going to mention the names of nine individuals. Nine men that the Lord chose to have their names included in the Bible. It's amazing. Nine men that most of us have never heard of because they were all guys who were behind the scenes. These are guys that I like to call Paul's special teams players. How many of you here like football? Like football? You know, on every football team, they have the special teams. These are the guys that play on kickoffs and punts. So some of these guys only get into the game two, maybe at the most eight times in a game. They're not on the field that often, but they're vital, vital for a team's success. These guys are Special teams players, we could say. They're Paul's special teams players. They were guys who were, were used behind the scenes. And in every church, there are those who are the special teams guys that are used behind the scene. They're, they're people that you don't see and you don't know their names. But here's the thing. God sees them. God sees you. And he knows your name. There's a gal in our church. I won't mention her name. She probably wouldn't want me to. But every single Sunday, she gets here really early and cleans the whole sanctuary. Just goes through the whole sanctuary. Just makes sure everything is neat and tidy. And no one asked her to do that. She just took that upon herself. Special teams. Behind the scenes. Notice, each one of these individuals, I think, teach us something. The first is a man by the name of Tychicus. And I I like to say he's the man, if you're taking notes, with a servant's heart. That's Tychicus, verse 7. He says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. And then he mentions with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all the things that are happening here. Tychicus. His name means fortunate. He ministered to Paul, or with Paul, for many years. He's mentioned in the Bible five times in the New Testament, starting in the book of Acts. Okay? 
In Acts chapter 20, Paul is in Ephesus near the end of his third missionary trip, and he committed himself, Tychicus did, to travel with the apostle Paul. And, and remember, this is at a time there's, they're not traveling on planes or trains or automobiles. They walked most places. They did go on ships, um, but not cruise ships. These were rough ships that they went on. And this guy, he committed himself to travel with Paul through tough terrain, through shipwrecks, and he was faithful. He didn't bail. And the last recorded thing, I want you to catch this, that Tychicus did for Paul was to take this epistle, the book of Colossians, and the epistle to Philemon, and the epistle to the Ephesians, and deliver them to their destinations. So he went to Colossae, where he delivered the letter to the Colossians and the book of Philemon, because that's where he was from. And he went to the city of Ephesus. But catch this. In order to do that, because we might say, okay, you know, great, the guy was a mail carrier, big deal, you know. In order to do that, okay, he traveled a thousand miles. A thousand miles. And to get from Rome to Colossae, Tychicus had to cross Italy on foot. Anybody ever been to Italy? Okay, it's very mountainous. It's not the easiest place to get around, okay. Crosses Italy on foot. He sails across the Adriatic Sea. He went through Greece also on foot to then sail across the Aegean Sea to the coast of Asia Minor. And when he reaches the coast of Asia Minor, he still had a um, hundred miles to go on foot to get Colossae. Like walking from here to LAX, okay? On foot. That's what he did. And Tychicus did this for his love for Paul, his love for the church, and his love for God. He was steady, determined, and faithful. And there are some of you here that that's you. You bless us because you're steady and you're faithful and you just always show up. When there's something to be done, you're here. When a service is happening, you're here. You're here to serve. And, and you're you know, just showing up and you're behind the scenes and you're just faithful. And here's what's interesting. In the scope of the overall ministry of the church, we might think that this was a little thing. He delivers these three letters. A little thing. But I want you to think about this. The letters that Tychicus delivered outlasted the Roman Empire. And they live to this very day as we're studying one of them here in 2022. And so the life of Tychicus teaches us that there is greatness in the smallest of things that are done for Jesus. So the Bible says not to despise the days of little things. Those little things could ultimately lead up to a huge impact. Now we notice the second guy on Paul's list in verse 9 is Onesimus. And Onesimus, I like to say about him, he's a man with a sinful past. Some of you know his story. In fact, it's found in the book of Philemon, one of my famous or favorite books uh, to preach on. I love the story. I like to do break it into three parts. It's such an amazing story, but I'll give you the cliff notes. Onesimus worked for a guy named Philemon. He was a slave that ran away. He ripped off his master, and he just was tired of being a slave, and so he ran off, and he ends up in Rome. He ends up getting getting arrested. He ends up in prison. And guess who his cellmate is? None other than the Apostle Paul. And it's there that he actually comes to faith in Christ. And Paul spends time with him and discipling him and pouring into him. And then he says, Onesimus, you need to go home. You need to go back home. You need to make things right with Philemon. You're getting out of here in a couple days. You need to go home. And he writes this letter, the book of Philemon, and he sends it with Onesimus. I want you to take this back to Philemon. And what it basically says to Philemon and to the whole church in Colossae, I want you to receive him back. I want you to forgive him. And if he's wronged you in any way, Paul says, I want you to charge that to my account. I want you to receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. As a brother. And that's exactly what he did, and that's exactly what, what, what happens. Because, you see, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if there, therefore if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. 
So he comes back and Paul says, I want you to receive him as one of you. And Paul shows his regard for him by having him. I want you to catch this. Along with Tychicus, inform the Colossians about Paul's situation. He says, hey, not only is this guy now my brother, but he's my spokesman. I want you to listen to what he has to say. Wow. This runaway slave. Onesimus was a testimony to the power of God to transform a life. It's a great picture for us. Then he mentions Archicus in verse 10. The man with a sympathetic heart. Archicus, we are told in verse 11, was a Jewish believer. And though like many Jews of the diaspora, he had a Greek name. And according to Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he was a native of Thessalonica. And Archicus, his first appearing during Paul's missionary journey, his three years of ministry in Ephesus. And it was during that time we read in the books of, book of Acts in chapter 19 that he was seized by a rioting mob and beaten because they recognized him as being with Paul. He accompanied Paul on his return trip to Jerusalem and on his voyage to Rome, Acts chapter 27. And as Paul writes to the Colossians, Archicus is still be by his side. And that he chose of his own will, Paul's lifestyle, speaks of his sympathetic heart and his caring heart. That he gave up his own freedom to minister to Paul's needs. And any leader would be enriched to have a faithful guy like Archicus by his side through all of his trials. And the Lord's work would not be done if it wasn't for guys like this. And Archicus's life teaches us that God takes note of those who are able to endure difficulty and remain faithful. They press on. And then he mentions in verse 10, Mark. Mark's the man with a surprising future. Notice it says, verse 10, Archicus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Don't shun him, in other words. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and they have proven to be a comfort to me. Mark was the cousin of Barnabas, and he joined Paul, and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And midway through, Mark has a change of heart. He was a young guy then. He has a change of heart. He doesn't like this, you know, what's going on. So he bails. He flakes out on them. And this bothered Paul. In fact, he looked at, at, at Mark as a flaky guy. So when it came time for the second missionary journey, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, Barnabas, Barnabas is that guy that's always come along, you know, hey, you know, come on, let's get up, let's do it again. And he's like, hey, let's take Mark again. And Paul's like, no way. No way. That guy's a flake. We can't rely on him. We can't trust him. He's not coming with us. And it said the dispute got so bad that Paul and Barnabas actually broke up. They went their separate ways. Paul went on with Silas and Barney, Barnabas. He took Mark. And they went out and ministered together. Now, what's interesting, Mark rebounded. He proved himself with Barnabas. And he ends up, get this, ministering with Paul. Peter, which makes all the sense in the world, right? Because Peter's a guy who knew all about second chances. You know, he got a big one. So he's like, you know, come on, man, you can, you can minister with, with, with me. And the cool thing about Mark's story is that his relationship with Paul was eventually restored. And in Philemon 24, Paul names Mark among his fellow workers. It's like full circle. It's like, you know, Paul's going to find him and Mark's with me. You know, he's, he's with me as well. And we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, that Paul tells Timothy to pick up Mark and bring him with you. This is so awesome. He says, because he's useful to me in the ministry. And now Paul tells the Colossians, if Mark comes to you, obey his instructions and welcome him. Don't shun him. Don't treat him like a flaky guy because he's not that. And if the story ended there, it would be great, but it doesn't because 
This guy, Mark, gets to do what only three other people in the history of the world were called to do. He writes one of the Gospels. You see, the Gospel of Mark was written by this guy, and it's Peter's account of the life of Christ. So his testimony is really a lesson to us that our God is the God of the second chance. And it's a great encouragement to any of us who have had some failures in life and ministry that we can know that it's not the end, that God picks us up and he restores us. After Mark comes this guy, Jesus, who was also called Justice, and and he's the man with a strong commitment. And nothing is really known about this guy who is called Justice apart from this verse. But according to this verse, Mark and Archippus or Aristarchus, excuse me, were only fellow workers that Paul had who were Jews because he mentions they were part of the circumcision. And think about that. Paul was Jewish. He loved the Jewish people. And the lack of Jews' uh, response from the Jewish people probably broke his heart. And the fact that Justice was willing to leave his people and identify himself with Paul demonstrates his strong commitment because there would be a cost that he would receive from his Jewish brethren because he was following Jesus. And so his life is a testimony to us that when we're going to serve the Lord, there's always a cost that we have to count. And then he mentions Epaphras. And he was a man who had a zeal for the body of Christ and committed himself to being a prayer warrior. Look at verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has a great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and, in, and those in Heropolis. This guy was a prayer warrior. And some of you might think, man, all I can do is pray. That's all, that's all I can do right now. Man, prayer is mighty. Prayer is powerful. And God sees and hears. And he wants us to be a praying church. There are some people who are, because of physical ailments, they're, they're not able to do much. They're not able to get out much. But boy, they can pray. And I am so incredibly thankful for the prayer warriors in this church. He then mentions Luke, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greets you. So after Epaphras is Luke, and uh, Luke is the man with a specialized talent. Luke was, was actually a physician, and he was a personal physician and close friend to the Apostle Paul. He was a Gentile believer who traveled frequently with Paul on his missionary journeys. And, and you think about you know, Paul and the physical, you know, he talks about a physical difficulty that he had, as well as he was beaten often, shipwrecked often. It'd be great to have a doctor with you, right? You know, going through what Paul did. And so Luke was an educated cultural man who is you know, evidenced in the fact that he actually writes the book of Acts. He writes the gospel of Luke. Very, very intelligent guy. And the thing about Luke that I want you to catch is he used his special talent not for his own gain, but for the furtherance of the gospel. And Luke teaches us that God has given to each of us gifts and talents and abilities that go beyond taking care of our own physical needs. And so I ask you, How are you using the special talent that God has given to you? Are you using it for the furtherance of the gospel? Then Paul mentions Nymphus in verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, Nymphus, and the church that is in his house. Nymphus is the man with the gift of hospitality. He's mentioned simply because he allowed the Bible to take place to be taught in his house. How cool is that? God recognized it, says, you know, I'm going to put this guy in my Bible. Because he had a great home Bible study. (laughs) Nymphus. That shouldn't be encouraging to us. And then we come to verse 16, Paul's closing comments. He says, now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. 
this salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. So the last guy he mentions here is Archippus, the man in need of encouragement. He's also mentioned in the book of Philemon as a fellow soldier of Christ. And I love this, that Paul takes a minute to just encourage this guy to be faithful in his calling by saying, hey, tell Archippus to take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. And this is a great reminder for us. This is what we learn from this, that sometimes the most faithful need encouragement Especially when you're ministering in a, in a way in a, that, that you don't often see results. You know, you often don't see results. You know, I, I, I preach every Sunday, a lot of times on Wednesdays, and I have no idea. You know, I, I believe that God's word is having an effect, but I have no idea. So every now and then, and I'm not saying this so you'll do this, just, you know, but every now and then, like I did today, I get an email from somebody encouraging, you know, me in a teaching. And it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. I touched a person, you know, you used me, you know, kind of thing. It's, it's wonderful, but this is the thing, you know, that idea like, hey, let's, let's encourage Archippus. Now, some of you who are sharp are going, Pastor Rob, you missed somebody. Who'd I miss? I heard somebody say it, Demas. Demas. I missed him on purpose. You see, I skipped him on purpose because Demas is a stain on this group. Because he's the man with a sad future. He had made a substantial commitment to the Lord's work and was with Paul in both of his imprisonments. But unlike Paul's other companions, companions, however, his future, his end, at least we know, was sad. Because Paul records the tragedy of Demas' desertion in 2 Timothy chapter 4 when he says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The idea is the pull of the world had its effect on this guy and he abandoned Paul and he abandoned the ministry and, and the the indication is he, he walked away from the Lord. And so Demas's life reminds us of our need to be on guard, to stay accountable, to do what Paul said in the very beginning, and to watch and pray. So here we see Paul's special team players. These guys who ministered behind the scenes, no books were written about these guys, um, but they are guys who God used in an incredible way, who God made an incredible impact through. Guys who did little things that God took notice of. Their hearts, their commitment, their faithfulness, their diligence. And God said, I'm going to put their names in my word, in my book, so that for all of history and beyond, they're going to be remembered. They're going to be recognized. And you know what? All of us can fit into that category of being a beloved brother or sister who is faithful in serving and faithful in ministering and faithful with what God has put before us. We can open up our homes or open up our houses and open, or, or open up our hearts. We can be those who pray. We can be those who, who press in. We can be those who just show up. What do you need? What can I do? How can I help? And God takes notice of that. So as we wrap up our study in this book tonight, my charge to you is this. Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. How do you discover that? What are your gifts? How has God gifted you? What gifts? What talents? What's ability? Has he given you? What's your sphere? That's the second thing. What's he put in front of you? What opportunities? Oftentimes, this is the problem. God puts an opportunity in front of us. You're like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And so I'm not going to do anything until I get to do this. 
And God's going, no, that's not how it works. I'm putting this in front of you because I want you to learn how to be faithful in the little things. Because when you're faithful in the little things, he says, then you're exalted with much. Oh, I get so tired of seeing people that, that are in, uninterested in doing the little things. That's what God's looking for. Behind the scenes people. Because listen, we just went through nine names. Nine names of people in the book of Colossians that God takes notice of. There's not, I don't, I don't, I don't know if there's nine names of people in the book of Acts that preached. If you think about that, I, 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 need, I, just, I need to... to Research that a little bit, but, but I, I don't think there are. I mean, it mentions Paul, Peter, Paulos. Nine guys that were, or, or three guys that were on the platform that we all know their names. But nine guys that God takes notice of to take half a chapter to talk about. How awesome is that? So what's your gift? What's your sphere? Be faithful. Because we have this promise from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God takes notice of it. Takes notice of it. You want to know, discover how maybe you can be used here at the church there's a on our website there's a volunteer page you can go in and what's my gift what's my sphere what's what's God put on my heart fill that out somebody will get in contact with you give you an opportunity and it might very well be the start of it might be behind the scenes but it's behind the scenes that makes everything happen and that's what god takes notice of amen let's pray father we thank you for this study in the book of colossians we thank you god for uh the things that you have um been teaching us over the the course of these past eight weeks or so and lord we um thank you for your word to us tonight on prayer and how we walk and how we talk and how we serve Lord, I pray that um, we would just really pray this in. And now as we just take this time to be encouraged a little bit more before we go our way, I want you to be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.